Welcome to the Revelation Project Podcast. I'm Monica Rogers, and this podcast is intended to disrupt the trance of unworthiness and to guide women to remember and reveal the truth of who we are. We say that life is a revelation project, and what gets revealed gets healed. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Revelation Project Podcast. I am so happy to welcome back Coral Brown. Coral was one of our top podcast episodes of 2020, so I thought it only fitting to invite her back at the close of what has been an incredibly challenging year for most of us. And I've asked her to really talk more about her philosophy on beliefs. We called this episode The Biology of Belief, and it's really about how our beliefs shape everything, including what we perceive, how we live and move in the world, and what our beliefs even do to biologically impact our health. Coral is known and loved in both her local community and around the world. She's a mother, a Dharma dweller, and a teacher of teachers. She is known for her integrative, lighthearted approach that fuses the energetic, creative energy of vinyasa yoga with her experience as a holistic counselor. Coral is a licensed mental health counselor and draws on 20 years of experience in yoga, philosophy, and holistic counseling to provide fertile, open space for the process of healing and transformation. I'm so glad that you get a chance to listen to this episode because her teachings are fueled by the desire to reveal and cultivate the essence of our individual and collective dharma and instill it into every aspect of our being. Coral leads worldwide teacher trainings, retreats, and workshops. She's a regular contributor to Yoga Journal and has featured classes on yogagirl.com. So hey, Coral. Hey, Monica. So, so great to welcome you back. And here we are again on kind of a stormy day. I know. I love it. I love it too. I, I, I think we're onto something here. Like maybe we actually have more impact than we think on the elements. Maybe we're elementals. Absolutely. We are. We are the elements. You know, last time, Coral, I have to tell you, you were one of our top listen to episodes of the year. And I really wanted to welcome you back for a number of reasons. One is obviously that one. But the second one is you are such a wealth of knowledge on so many different subjects. And I think that one of the things that you and I have kind of glanced or kind of just talked about in a superficial way, but I know it goes much, much deeper, is how you look at core beliefs and how they shape us as human beings. And I wondered if we could dive more deeply into that today. Absolutely. I'm really passionate about it in my work with my clients, psychotherapy clients, with my practice in, in yoga teaching, with teacher training. We we're constantly digging in and examining our core beliefs and root values. And in my own personal work, I, I, I'm always reflecting. I'm trying to, to stay on top of that and question some of my actions and, and wonder whether they're, what they're motivated by. So I'm always doing sort of a beliefs-based inventory, which is what I'm going to encourage everyone to do during this conversation. 
Yeah, well, say more right right at that juncture, I guess, beliefs-based inventory. What do you mean by that? Well, so asking yourself, there, I mean, they're huge questions. They're who am I? What defines me? What's, you know, in my bones, in my blood, what's driving me? What's, what's causing me to make these decisions or what's causing me to have these fears or pursue these relationships or avoid these relationships. So our core beliefs are really the bedrock of our personality. The way we believe, what we believe is the way we perceive. So another way to say that is we see what we believe. We look at the world and we see it as a just and true place, or we look at the world and we see it as an angry and unfair and unsafe place. This is sort of the definition really of manifesting our reality. We have the power. No, I I was just going to say, like, I was like, because literally right in front of me, I have the words or the phrase, believe it to see it. And it's Danielle Mm. Laporte. And I thought Uh it's so true. Like in our society, right? We're always taught or I was raised, you know, you have to see it to believe it. And it just jarred that. But it just always is so serendipitous. Like I have that phrase literally as my focus point today. Now you have to see it to believe it. So you were you raised Catholic? Or? Yes. Okay. So <laughs> not to like, I'm not a fortune teller or anything. I've just, I've done so much work with people and their beliefs and what they're rooted in and our cultural cognition, cognitive, the cognitive functioning, our belief, our brain, the way it believes and then perceives and tells us what to do. The cultural cognition, generally speaking, is very dualistic in nature This is, I'll explain what that means. But if we think back 300 years ago, where Newton and Descartes created their belief system around separation of body and mind or spirit, body and mind. And honestly, I read something interesting in Margaret Wheatley's future, the new leadership, leadership of a new world. I'll I'll give you the book name for the notes required reading in my grad program. She was talking about, she was telling a story about how Descartes, Rene Descartes, in order for him, this, I think, therefore I am, and this cogito ergo sum, this separation of the spirit from the body was an, an arrangement or an agreement that he made with the Pope so that he could use bodies, cadavers to do science and research. They, the church wouldn't let him do that because they didn't want him meddling with the spirit or the soul. So if he proposed that the two were separate and distinct and promised that he wouldn't be meddling with spirit or soul, that these, this was just a body, then the Pope agreed and gave him access to do the medical research. So it's really interesting how what our belief system, how it's been shaped. Ah, oh, that is actually fascinating. Yeah, I thought that caught my eye. Yeah, and some of these deeper revelations are, you know, so, I don't know, I'm hearing so many, you know, distinctions like this that continue to really surface recently that are dispelling so many myths. And I think that's happening for us globally. But to go back to what you were, you know, saying in terms of this, that being kind of that root of the dualistic, almost like agreement or belief system, it's like, there's the foundation. Yeah. And if you can trace it to a source, you don't always have to, but if you can, it gives our, our, again, our, our cognitive functioning, something to chew on. And it says, Oh, okay. That's why we can check off the box. That's, that's definitely our, our left brain's function, right. Is to, to have that sort of like, which go, which goes in what box or the, 
have that identifiable source is it can be helpful. It doesn't necessarily change, but it's awareness and awareness is the beginning of everything. So dualistic and non-dualistic, some more concrete examples. Actually, I've been, uh, it's been, Seamus, my son is four, and this is the first year that Christmas is a, a really big deal to him. And so I'm seeing this dualistic, punitive philosophy around Santa Claus. Do this, Santa Claus is watching you. If you don't do this, you won't get that. That's a dualistic perspective, very simply put. You know, we watch Polar Express and there's this the ringing of the jingle bell and those that don't believe anymore, they can't even hear the bell. It's there, but since they don't believe it, they don't perceive it. And if you believe, then yes, you hear the bell, the jingle bells of the sleigh or whatever. But so usually I would use God and church and and this this heaven or hell. So that's a dualistic. You're being judged. You're being watched. Um, there's something greater than you that's determining your your reality. Where a non-dualistic philosophy means there is no two, there is only one. And there is a sense of diversity within the unity. Now, this is more many yoga philosophy perspectives, not all, not the origins. The origins of yoga philosophy is in the, the Vedic times. And that was actually very dualistic. That was, you picture the the sadhu or the ascetic person sitting in and immolating themselves for years, you know, with one arm raised overhead for five years to get their the boons or the gifts or immortality or you know something from the gods, their presence, their Christmas presence, right? Mm-hmm. The non-dualistic approach says, no, you already are that. You are that which is everything. And so if we have that belief that I am connected to you, that I what I do impacts you and vice versa then that changes our perspective in the world and how we treat each other. Mm. If we have the belief that it's me for myself and you for yourself, then that creates a separation, a distinct separation. Now we're, we're in competition for the source, for the food, for whatever it might be. So it's two different streams of consciousness, of thought, of belief that create different perspectives and values and ways of living in the world. And herein kind of is the introduction to where fear starts to like, and I don't even know why that just comes up, but it seems to me like fear becomes that separating dualistic tool. And I don't know how that's... It's the tool. You're absolutely right. No, it's a tool. It's what we use. And when when Seamus was saying, is Santa watching me? Can he see me? Is he going to give me this if I'm good? I said, no, 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 no. He can't see you. He's not watching. He knows you're good. You are, you are just good. You know, I'm trying to fight back this wave of dualistic tradition and ritual that's crashing over us and still let him enjoy it. You know? Well, you know, and you're bringing up such a, such an important and interesting point, which I was thinking to myself as you were saying that, how interesting to know what you know as you're raising Seamus, because again, my kids are older and there's a way that you're in the thick of it with him and you have all of this other knowledge to really bring and like you said, kind of really create this new narrative for him and this narrative that can exist alongside with what he's seeing that kind of can help guide him to see the dualism, but to choose or form his values and beliefs around kind of that bigger 
whole of the mm-hmm. oneness that you're ta- that you speak of. And I think, gosh, what a gift. It is, but I'm always learning. And I think Glennon Doyle said something about this on Instagram. I saw it about pendulum parenting. Like we're overcompensating and we want it to, you know, we want it to be so just right. And even when we do like whatever the solution is, there's a problem in it. It be, you know, the solution always becomes a problem. So he's doomed either way to, <laughs> to have to go through, you know, all of, all of the rites of passage of life. But yes, I'm trying to, to, to guide him in the best way I can. Well, and I'm just thinking for him at four, where you, you know, you've got in adults, we're adults who are entrenched in this. And of course, we see this playing out in the world continuously, especially right now. I think it's magnified, it's amplified. So, you know, I wonder if you could dive more deeply into how this impacts. What are the, what are the impacts of this dualistic thinking? So if we perceive the world and what's interesting enough is kids naturally see one, they have to learn separateness. You know, the, the mind looks, the brain, the mind, the, the conditioned mind looks at unity and sees diversity. Um, it looks at the one and it's, it has to part it out and separate it. That's what we're taught. Mm. And that's one of the reasons I choose a, a specific education system for my son and for myself. I wish I'd had this that teaches, it's more imagination based than it is, you know, the, the, other organized education, which will come at a time, but it's it's really cultivating imagination and and not stamping that out. So it's not how you learn, not what you learn, it's how you learn it, right? So to take on our own awareness and say, okay, what is my basic belief? Do I believe the world is separate, right? Is that my worldview? Or do I believe that there's this invisible fabric of connectedness, that it's a web or a a whole or a oneness? And in other words, I love Jungian, Campbell, George Lucas, the force, right? If we're probably mentioned this in our last conversation, are your most fundamental beliefs that the world is, is a place that's impacting each other, that, that we're, it is this, this web where you touch the bubble or web in one place and it has an impact on the other, or is it like everyone's out for themselves and you have to do, that's more of a scarcity based or, or Newtonian Cartesian based philosophy worldview that's embedded in many of the forms of Catholicism and Christianity and modern day religion. So like you've said, we're on a cusp or a tipping point. We're shifting toward change. Uh, what I was referencing in our last talk was this Aurobindo quote, um, if there's to be a future, we'll wear a crown of feminine design. What does that mean? We unpacked it a little bit in the last time, but regardless of what it means, it's what it means to each person. What does feminine mean? What is future? What is the, what does that crown of feminine design look like? What are your beliefs around that? So you know, I think those are some of the questions to that. Those are the, that's the initial question to ask. What is your root belief of, or do you fall into dualistic and non-dualistic? Then here's the next question. Is that belief yours or is it what you've been taught? Mm-hmm. Right. Cause we've been conditioned by our culture, Newtonian, Cartesian, like television, but we've also been conditioned by religion, by our community, by our family of origin. So there's a lot of variables that need to be uh, sorted through. So to be patient with yourself as you're doing this is my advice. Yeah, well, and I was thinking, there's those of us, I know, I'll speak for myself that, you know, can sit here and consider these questions. And sometimes it's the processing. And I was just thinking, like, these are, these are great questions to journal. These are great questions to 
you know, really process out loud with somebody if you've got that mm-hmm. luxury, right? Yeah. But I was just thinking there's a way that these questions can just kind of sit with you. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. The questions are the answers. And I, Rilke has a beautiful way of saying that, but the beauty is in the question. And that's what yoga gives us. It gives us questions. It doesn't give us answers necessarily. It gives us a lot of questions. And there's so there's such a richness in the question. And if the less grounded, safer, secure we feel, the more anxiety provoking questions can be. Okay. I, so say that again. The less safe, secure, and trusting we feel, the more intense or anxiety provoking questions can be. Because if our core beliefs are the bedrock, bedrock of our personality, we start to question those. That can be dangerous. Okay. I, lo- I Yeah. I love, well, I love that you said that because again, it's, we're again, going back to conditioning, we're really taught that we need answers. And what we're trying to do is really dispel this myth and create more, more of like a leaning in more of a dwelling inside of these questions, because that's what gives us this ability to kind of expand inside of them. It does. It does. But starting where we are, the philosophy of meet yourself where you are, and then look to your basic needs. Fundamentally, what are your basic needs? Are they being met? Can you afford to do this inquiry right now? If we talked probably last time, I think it was about about COVID and those of us that are impacted by it and our most basic needs have been rocked, you know, rocked. And we, we can't afford, the, we don't have the luxury of this metaphysical kind of talk and, you know, psychology and spirituality, we're just, we're trying to keep it together. So if our philosophy and our spirituality isn't something that we're able to dive into, and one of the reasons why that might be the case is because of trauma. So let me just say mindfulness is very, very, very popular right now. And it's, again, it's a solution to a problem, but within that solution, there is a problem. So the problem with mindfulness and its widespread use and use on an app and use here, and you know, you can get it without having the the one-on-one with the teacher is that it doesn't account necessarily for trauma. And there is mindfulness-based trauma theory, but when we look to our nervous system and look to our brain and, and what our body does as a reactive protective mechanism, We may not be taking into account that mindfulness might not be the best practice for us. When I say mindfulness, I mean like doing a body scan. That's that's getting outside your body. That could trigger some sort of dissociative memory or event for someone or not necessarily be a big trigger, but kind of rewire or keep firing patterns that maybe need to be refiring to wire differently. So mindfulness isn't a catch-all answer. We have to be aware that there, there's trauma-informed mindfulness as well. And that's just sort of a sidebar to say that, you know, it's not something that just everybody should or would or could pick up and, and, and use. Well, what I love what you're, you're pointing to, again, is kind of this going, you know, back to getting out of the dualistic thinking. It's it, that mindfulness is not necessarily the right way for everyone. Yeah. And it's really looking at, what is the impact and really, again, meeting yourself where you are and really considering and what I'm hearing, and we haven't spoken of it yet, but under under the surface, what I'm hearing is is compassion. For yourself, yeah. Yeah. And, and that origin of self-compassion then leads to external compassion. So this compassion, let's also name it as empathy. 
when we talk about empathy, we usually are meaning compassion to be able to say, oh my gosh, hand to heart. I know what that feels like. I've experienced that. Um, but then there's two other kinds of empathy as well. There's cognitive empathy and emotional empathy. Emotional empathy is probably the second most likely heard of where someone's an empath, where they physically feel the emotions that someone else is feeling. They take it on like they've caught a cold, right? They caught the emotion. I literally, I literally, Coral, I just... Uh, um last night said to Austin, Austin, so we were watching the Queen's Gambit. And it was the very, I don't know if you saw it, but it was the last scene. And, you know, she she ends up walk, I'm gonna uh, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, but she's like, in the last scene, I won't I won't say it, but she's she's like with her people, right? And (laughs) and like tears are pouring and I'm like, oh, you know, and I because I know Austin's gonna look at me and he always does with of course compassion, right? But he'll like reach his hand over and like touch my arm. And I was like, you know, it's really hard sometimes. And he he literally said, What's hard? And I was like, to feel this much at such a visceral level, to Mm -hmm. be this empathic sometimes is so difficult. And of course, that's that empathy that you're talking about that most of us are familiar with. So I just wanted to say that because it came up last night, again, is just sometimes feeling like that's a burden. Right. Well, what you're describing is is not just the compassion empathy, but the the emotional empathy where you're actually like feeling it yourself. You're feeling and and this is how the media works. Like psychology of media and advertising is amazing and how it shapes us and and forms like our our belief system. And, you know, everything keeps going back to that. But the the final the third kind of empathy is cognitive empathy. And this is really important to be able to understand and even not just understand, but see someone else's perspective, someone, especially that you don't agree with, that would be the the most challenging to see and understand their perspective. You don't have to agree with them, but you get it. I understand where they're coming from. I see how they, that sense of scarcity or abundance or whatever it might've been led them to that act or that belief system that they have. So if we can have that deep cognitive understanding of one another, it's very disarming. It can also be quite dangerous because you can then know how to manipulate someone with that information, but we aren't talking about sociopaths. and (laughs) (laughs) Not yet. Maybe the next episode. (laughs) Just putting it all out there. Like there's always a danger to it, you know, but, or a way it can be used for not, but but well, the positive aspects are cognitive empathy are really important. That's they emotional are really intelligence. Im- they are really important. So yeah, emotional intelligence, EQ, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So having emotional intelligence, otherwise known as EQ, because it is just as valuable. You know, you think of an intellect and we, we talk about this a lot. If I do like leadership or corporate talks, um, emotional intelligence comes up because it's how do I, I have the best skills as far as whatever the TPS reports, if you've ever seen the movie office space, is that what's that? Anyway, um, <laughs> I have the, I have the capability, I have the education, I have the intelligence to do X, Y, or Z, but do I have the emotional intelligence that it lands just as important as right, you know, intellectual intelligence. So emotional intelligence or EQ is self-awareness. The ability to, to be aware, to get out of your own way and see the impact you're having on the world, right? Your moods, your emotions, what drives you. When, when someone has that awareness, which is huge, it's the first thing with everything, it's going to 
give you a new perspective. It's going to cue you in, hopefully. And then self-regulation. So self-awareness, self-regulation, the ability to, to know how we're feeling, to recognize it, but then to do something about it, to redirect anger or shift our moods or to not be reactive. Right? Can you think of the in the movie, the person that's the boss and, you know, that has this rage episodes, like, so this is self-regulation. Can we, can we monitor and regulate ourselves? Motivation. What is, what's our intention? Is our motivation just for the paycheck? Is it cutthroat? Is it to further ourselves or is it for the greater good for the, the, are we pursuing like the mission statement or the goal of the collective, whatever it might be? Um, and then empathy, right? The ability to understand emotional makeup of other people, but also have compassion and understand that cognitive functioning, why somebody might, I don't understand. Why would he do that? Okay. F- try to figure out the answer. What needs are unmet that made him do that or pushed him to do that? Um, and then social skills, being able to manage relationships, to build networks, to help other people, you know, have leadership, to help other people work together and and regulate them. So co-regulation. Um, so those are the, the five main components of emotional intelligence. And that's really geared for the workplace, but it's also in, I think, all of our relationships. Oh my gosh. I mean, I can't think of any skill set that's more important, honestly. And, you know, and I guess my next observation or even question is, this seems to be something that we're all collectively really working on right now, because this is something that we see, I think, playing out in major, major ways in terms of people just hitting a wall when it comes to kind of our dualistic way of looking at things. I think there's such a rise in collective fear, which shows up as anger, right? If you were to unpack any time you feel angry about something, it's because you're afraid. Mm-hmm. Whether you're afraid something has been unjust, whether you're afraid something's going to hurt you or you're not going to get what you need. Anger is a rudimentary emotion. You may feel touchy or irritated, or you may feel more intensely agitated or frustrated, defensive, or you may feel outraged, furious, irate, right? So that it's always on a spectrum, these emotions. So for us to do our personal work and check in and say, where do I fall on the spectrum of X feeling, whether it's, you know, happy, sad, angry, afraid, ashamed. Am I high? Am I at a low threshold, a medium, or am I like right at the top? That's going to help us feel, I realize how, feel, I like that word, feel, help us realize. <laughs> That's a great word that we've got to coin that. I, I want to feelize. Yeah. Oh it my helps God. us feelize so um, how triggered we are. And so we're, we are all collectively triggered right now, one way or another. And when I first, we were reaching out saying, Hey, let's talk again. I was like, all right, let's talk about justice and the belief around justice and fairness and what that's doing to us, that basic core belief that we individually have and how it's being poked and prodded at and and manipulated by media and news or you know without humor there's paranoia or sense of fakeness right so fake news uh, truth and justice justice having the US in it us not the United States but us feeling connected to us and without having a sense of the ability to laugh and say huh well it's, you don't have that ability when you're when you're in fear when you're in anger you are paranoid and you're looking, you're waiting, this confirmation bias where what you believe, you're looking to see it, to manifest it. So if I believe that the world is an unjust or unsafe place, I'm going to seek that out and corroborate my belief with 
relationships with the way people are driving, with the person that checked me out at CVS, with the way somebody walked by me. I'm going to see what I believe everywhere around me. Right. Like looking for all the evidence. Yep, absolutely. I'm, I'm trying to collect the evidence. And we're, we're, we're all sort of shifted right now in the, the, the heightened, this hypervigilant state, uh, you know, after the election and after, not after COVID, but with COVID and vaccine, there's just so much and the human rights movement, everything is like bubbling up. And it's, you know, you know, in hindsight, I think we'll be able to say that absolutely was necessary and had to happen. And it was a good thing. But as we're going through it and feeling it and feeling the loss and feeling the pain and the fear and the, like how it feels in our bodies and what it's doing to our, our, our communities, it's, it's a tremendously challenging time, but it's like the, the bow, uh, the, the draw, you know, it gets drawn back the bow and arrow before it can be shot forward. So we have, we're having this contraction before expansion. And I might've said that the last time we talked as well, because it's, it's been going on for a while. Yeah, I was gonna say, you know, concrete examples, just to kind of bring this into more of concrete, just, and and I'm just going to speak to it for a minute, because the examples are everywhere. So one place to look is, is all of the isms, the being able to see evidence of racism or evidence of, I mean, there's all of these ways that I think I see this especially playing out in the news or on social media in terms of, uh, you know, vaccinations, I think is another one. Um, politics, just in terms of just whether you're for Trump or Biden, right? Like there's just so many ways that I think we're kind of going at it. it and I, I often look at the way that we engage, choose to engage or not engage. And I wonder if you could talk about that a bit. Right. So I have a lot of personal experience and also working with, with clients too, is we've lost friends over this um, debate or belief or, you know, whether it's on social media, it's sometimes it's easy. Oh, I'll just mute that person and follow. Well, that's not that easy when the person is your partner or your sister, your brother, your mother, your father. So to sit with someone that has these different beliefs and be able to not push ours onto them or feel like theirs are being pushed onto us, but that more highly and highly more high, the higher your empathy uh, as far as emotional empathy, in the, again, that means like I caught, like you caught a cold, like you feel like, then you feel the the vitriol, you feel the, the anger, you feel like the intensity and, and it's quite crippling. And it causes us often to either react and be angry or to withdraw. It's very hard to have a skillful conversation around something we're so passionate about and something there's such like a fire passion is pain. Right. And so to have that, what's driving our passion be organized into conscious speech and express our point. And then the person that we're speaking to might be, have more of a a logic based driven um, language style that sort of traps us or, you know, like brings us into a state of, of feeling like we are on trial or like right, we are back wrong to that collective to trigger, right? Right. So then we, we don't want to experience that. So we absorb. So it's a fight, flight, freeze moment and, or mute, go away, isolate. But again, we can't do that. That breaks down our connectedness and it, it's really, really unhealthy. And there's, 
there's things that, you know, if we don't have them, we get ill. So if we don't have proper nutrition or proper sleep or these physiological needs, if we don't have those needs met, we get ill. We have, there's, there's a pathology, pathological response. The same thing goes for values and meaning. If we don't have our, our main and most valued values met, then we have a, a, there's a metaphysical uh, pathological response. So that, you know, is these metapathologies, really, we feel them in our spiritual body, our physical body, our emotional body as well, where it might be a headache, or it might be, you know, feeling when we don't feel loved, or we don't feel seen, it does make us sick, we might feel it in our gut or our GI tract or in our blood pressure, right? So it, there's psychological and emotional responses that we have, we might feel sad, we might feel mad, but we also have physical to somatic responses to not having these needs met. And so when we disconnect, when we isolate, isolate, when we fight, when we're, you know, it's really, really unhealthy for, for all of us collectively. Yeah. Well, there's the dis-ease. And when we think about, you know, just kind of zooming out for a minute and looking at that collective trauma or collective triggers that, you know, we're all feeling again, I'm, I'm wondering how you would, guide us who are listening to really behave, respond versus react. I know, I know, I know. And I know everybody wants an answer. And so do I. And like I said, I'm, I struggle with it personally, where there's, there's a moment in time in a conversation where I'm feeling overwhelmed with, with feelings. And I don't know what to say without bursting or yelling or being angry or being upset or being, what do you mean? You know, so it's awareness. It's, it's realizing, stepping back, taking the pause. You know, we may not be able to have that conversation with that other person, but we need to be able to have it with ourselves. I don't so know, Coral. I, I really think you're onto something because it, it is, it's feelizing. Yeah, it is. No, absolutely. It really is. I mean, it's such a great word. And I think we're going to coin it right, right today (laughs) as a as a happy accident that it just says so much. It's recognizing in the moment that everybody is got that heightened sense of, you know, somatic response. And it's so hard. Yeah, it's so hard in the moment to, like I said, be able to skillfully present that. And then you also have to hope that your partner or person you're engaging with in this conversation can be skillful as well. So it's, it's, I don't think we're there yet in in that kind of intense relationship, but in the relationship to ourselves, I think it's the awareness going back to awareness and beliefs is where our work lies. Because once we have that cognition, once we can start to change our cognitive landscape, then we can be in general less reactive and more responsive, meaning take more of a pause and understand ourselves and our needs and why we might be having the urge to react. What button is it? What button is it pushing? What are we deprived of when, when we're, we get sick if we're deprived of something, right? We are, like I already mentioned, but if you're deprived of the truth, what does that look like? Needs motivate behavior. What are unmet needs? What are you being deprived of truth? What does that look like when you're deprived of truth? We get paranoid, we get angry, we get fearful. Um, what does it look like when we're deprived of feeling loved or when we don't feel safe or when we don't feel in control? So this comes back down to doing our core beliefs inventory. And uh, this is a Googleable thing. You can look up core beliefs inventory. But if you were to just break it down into 
first doing it yourself, it's sort of like if you Google headache and you think, oh my God, I have a brain tumor. First start with yourself and just internally Googleize and say, what are my beliefs? What are my beliefs, different belief systems, right? So philosophers and psycholo- psychological like therapists and sociologists have already done this work, but do it for yourself first and then go to the sources, the text, the, the online, whatever it might be. And yeah, inventory your beliefs. And the beautiful, well, I think beautiful and interesting thing is that these beliefs are malleable. They shift and they change. So are you living the story you want to be telling? I have a friend, Dave Ursillo, and he is an author and, and leadership coach. And he's a wonderful running partner of mine. And we do all, just friend in, in all ways, but we do, um, he did, he did this prompt, this three-day story reset. It's on his website, daveursillo.com. And the first question, this is the topic of my last newsletter. The first question on the this three-day story reset is, what's one word that would represent the story you've been living? Mm. And it took me way too long, in my opinion, to come up with that one word. And when I finally did, it was hesitant. And I've been waffling. I've been hesitant. I haven't felt that sense of stability. Okay, what does it look like when I'm deprived of feeling stable and confident and the ability to make decisions? And right, how does that demobilize me? So it was a really great prompt. And then it, it was just like three days worth of email prompts to help you like re- recite your story. Um, because it is the same, the story and the belief, it's the same thing. Like it's out there, this truth, this justice, but we can't see it if we don't believe it kind of like Santa's Jingle Bell. Right. Well, and what I hear you saying is that that prompted you to kind of reveal something that was hidden. You you weren't recognizing that you were kind of dwelling in this hesitancy. Is that correct? I realized that my overall pervading and all the different aspects of my life, should I get rid of my office? Should I do this? Should I do Was indecisive. Everything is on pause. Everything is, uh, I don't know what's going to happen based on it. So that to me, I recognize right away. That means I don't feel grounded. That it means feels, I don't I feel steady and I can't leverage myself if I don't have the ground to lever myself from like Archimedes said, right? So I needed to come back to if everything else is changing around me and I can't depend on things to work out the way I intend them to, or the way they've always worked out, then I need to go to another place that is unchanging where I feel safe and and stable and support supported. And that's within. And okay, that might be too esoteric for some people. Well, I don't know what it feels like to be within. Okay, well, then when do you feel that connection to self or source, whatever that might be? Is it when you're running? Is it when you're swimming? Is it when you're praying? Right? And is it, it dual or non-dual? We're all looking for that, that line, that thread or connection to hold on to. And so if the external lines and connections are all jumbled, then we've got to find it within. And what I'm also recognizing as you're kind of speaking this out loud is, is that it starts to point to where I may need something that I didn't necessarily recognize that I needed it. So that awareness, right. That that, that once I had that awareness, I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah, I can do this. Yeah, it changed everything for me. Nothing changed, but it changed everything for me. Well, and there's something here, you know, that I want to call, well, I'll go back to emotional intelligence, right? But there's this self, know thyself, that really, right? And also just this real understanding of self-love that comes in because 
when we're paying attention to ourselves at this deep level, I think a lot of people can dismiss it or think that it's self-indulgent. And and yet it is so, that's another kind of belief that I want to dispel for a lot of our listeners. Because again, as as women, I think we've often been conditioned to center ourselves last. And of course, in the realm of certain conversations, we're not wanting to center ourselves at all, because we're very careful of that right now. But I, I want to talk about it in the realm of really self-care and self-love is this way that you're pointing to, which is really getting you know, quiet, really coming to this in communion with ourselves, you know, and, and again, growing up in the Catholic uh, tradition, I don't mean, you know, communion in that way. I mean it more in really, you know, being, but that is the origin. Yes, of the, the communion. You know, that, that sacrament is to connect, to connect to divine. It's just the way that particular path does it. How do you do it? How do you communion? How do you connect and feel that sense of belonging, right? And that's one of the core beliefs. I belong. How connected do I feel to friends and family? You know, where do you fall on that as far as the threshold of being a high in sense of belief or low sense of belief or belonging rather, excuse me. Well, and belonging, you know, again, if for those of us that are maybe feeling this, you know, tremendous isolation, it, it there's this conversation around belonging to the self first. And I love a lot of Brene's work, and she talks kind of to this in terms of our sense of belonging, but how it really shows up to ourselves first and not abandoning ourselves when we're in these times of need. Yeah, I mean, I I absolutely agree with that, but I want to be able to bring that to somebody that that is having trouble uh, like biting into that and saying, Oh yeah, come live my life and tell me, like, give me that platitude, you know, because it does become like something that is like, Oh yeah, you say that from where you're sitting, but can you say that from where I'm sitting? Can I say that? So teaching people how to do that is, is what one of my passions is, you know, is to help them. Doesn't matter where you are. And I've been in low places and high places and it, I'm still with myself, you know? So it's an, it's an experience of education that, often we're robbed of it because this communion with the self, it's a, it can be a luxury, but we also, you know, if we read Victor Frankl's man's search for meaning, we realize that even in the darkest places, literally in the torture chambers of Auschwitz, that you can remember this, you can remember this understanding of, oh yes, I choose. And that's, nobody can take that away. You can take your, you know, your, your privileges away in other aspects, but you can't take away how you choose to respond, how you choose to internalize. And some of that, no, like I can't choose that yet because I haven't figured out how I haven't unlearned what I need to unlearn yet to be able to believe that and practice that. Yeah. So it's a spectrum in it again, meeting everybody where they are. And this, I do really believe is a time for self-reflection. It always is in yoga. It's called Svadhyaya to know thyself, to, to be the witness, to be in the state of awareness without judgment, Yeah, you know, to see yourself and, and have compassion, the self-compassion, like you were saying. And, and yes, if we can experience that, then maybe we can start experiencing it externally, but the subject and the object is the subject has to come first. So when I do 
when I do my teacher training, you know, I've kind of rephrased the name of it as online. I'm doing an online training this year. I'm filming the in-person teacher training, but it's teacher life training. You also get all the yoga teacher credentials, but we might not need those as much right now because where are the yoga jobs, right? If there's no studios or fewer studios, excuse me, it'll shift and change and be online or new studios will open. But in the meantime, it's time to do the work. Yeah. So go to the, the, whatever scriptures or texts or philosophy books or be in the community. And that's what I love about the teacher training is like, it connects people. It connects people and connects them to themselves first. They have no other choice but to do the work and study the self and uncover and dive in. And so when I was grappling with, do I keep running this now? It's such a weird time for it. I'm like, absolutely. It's more than ever. It's time for it. Cause right. it's, more of a, it's so you know, true. Life training. Yeah, I think I think there's just a kind of way that everything is getting turned on its head in terms of our ability physically to connect in this way. But exactly. But on an internal level, it's more important than ever. And I and that's that's the origin of the practice is the internal aspects, not the physical aspects. So while yeah, you can still do the physical practice. Um, doing is an expression of being. Let's trace it back to our being and look mm. more closely at that and then see how the doing is affected by the being. I love that. So I'm going to go back to something that you were talking to earlier in our episode, and it was imagination. And you said something really interesting about, and I don't know if you care to share it, I'm sure our listeners are curious, the education that you've chosen for Seamus. But So I want to put that out there. But what I also want to ask you is how can imagination help us right now with what we're talking about? Because imagination is what makes us different than other mammals. Mm. Imagination or storytelling. And this is based on beliefs. And what I had started to say before was, you know, your beliefs shift and change. I've done this particular belief inventory that I do with a client or actually no, it was in a workshop. And then did it again, eight months later, they came to another workshop and did it and they had shifted their beliefs had shifted and changed. They registered differently, which is fascinating, right? I love that. Yeah. That means your perspective of the world is changing, which means basically, as far as you're concerned, the world is changing. So Waldorf is the, it's, it's not a full Waldorf program right now. It's sort of a hybrid, but um, is the edu- educational, the gnome home is where my son goes and he, he, he's outside four to six hours a day and he's not learning to to write, but he's learning to sew. So he's learning the, the, what's it called? The, the physical, the hand skills. The handwork. Yeah. Yeah. The, the hand, head, heart, hands education. Right. Yeah. Um, that my kids, was it, my kids also motor. attended the fine motor skills. That's what I, I was actually thinking like fine motor skills. Yes, <laughs> so that I will love teach that. him to write, you know what I mean? So he's not saying here, you have to do this this way. It's like, learn this skill. And then later on, you'll learn it, you'll apply it this way. It's also, you see the story told in the Karate Kid, right? Where, where Ralph Macchio is like painting the fence and he's, he doesn't realize he's learning as he's doing this skill. Wax um, on, wax off. Exactly. So without the pressure of, you know, doing it right or doing it wrong, you, you're learning it. But imagination, anyway, imagination is what separates us really, as far as we know anyway, from other mammals and other beings, other sentient beings. It, and it's also a danger. Again, the ability to create a svadhisthana, the second chakra, is our spa, our, our self, the self origin, the origin of the self in the, the chakra body. And I know this is a whole other topic, but it's in the second chakra. We often think of our identity being in the third chakra, um, but it's the sense of self is most is attached to our sense of 
our, our, our ability to create. And that's our innate biological imperative to procreate. But imagination is what separates and makes us different because we can now create stories around it. We can create, we're creators. We're creating by every breath we're taking. We're creating not necessarily art or, or music. But we're creating thoughts and we're creating stories and we're creating perspectives. So imagination is, is everything. And when we forget imagination or when we lessen the value of it, when we're deprived of it, that's another prompt. What does it look like when we're deprived of our imagination? We're deprived of joy. We're, we're deprived of spontaneity. We're de- we start to feel sick in those ways where we, we don't have, oh, the, it's just going to be, today's going to be like yesterday. So we don't have that spark. Right? That's what drives us. Yeah, right. And, and I go back to, you know, this quote, believe it to see it. It's like, which is the opposite. You know, we're trained the opposite. You have to see it to believe it. But what you're saying is, and that's why I think that's such a a soothing balm for you, because you and me and a lot of other people in our culture were raised the opposite way we were taught indoctrinated, like, you know, be on guard in order for you to really believe something, make sure it's right there in front of you. Don't just take a leap of faith. You know, right. And and so what comes up for me, you know, in terms of imagination and visioning, it's this idea of understanding that we can envision a different possibility, a different outcome, a different like that, that something else is happening. We can believe we can choose going back to what you said before, choose to believe that mm-hmm. there are things happening for us versus to us. We can choose, yes, and that's right? a perspective. Okay. Yep, that's a choice that we make. We make that choice, and many of us don't realize that there's the the space between the the stimulus and the reaction to have that choice. When we slow down, we practice awareness. When we we start self reflecting more, we start to come to this awareness and recognition that yes, I actually. I can choose to not react to that right now. Yeah. I can choose to put a boundary there. I can choose to put a semi-permeable membrane, right? Kind of like a screen door so that I can choose what comes in and out and I can close the storm door when I need to. But I I think, yes, a lot of us have forgotten. And I do. And when we do it in in moments, I have moments where I forget that I have a choice around that X, Y, or Z. Because I I drop back into an old pattern or, you know, a conditioned response to something. And when I'm not in my grounded, stable, safe state, I may not make the most uh, heartfelt, conscious responses or reactions or decisions. Well, and I always love, I love how these conversations come full circle because I'm thinking too, like forgetting to me is back to the duality. It's back to the, Mm -hmm. you know, forgetting and thinking that I'm separate somehow from creating, from having control yeah. over anything. And that's, and that's what, one of the beliefs. Yeah. Is, where do you where do you fall in the spectrum of control? How do you how much do you feel in control of your life? The less in control of your life you feel, the more you're going to act controlling and the more anxiety you're going to have. But I apologize, I interrupted you. No, no, it's just so it's so great because it, it is there it is, like in a nutshell, all interconnected. Everything that we've talked about, how it all kind of intersects and interconnects and and I love this conversation because for those of us who are feeling that anxiety, I I guess where I feel more soothed in terms of having this conversation is remembering where I do have control, where I can ask the questions, yeah. where I can start to 
live in an inquiry, like you were asking us about maybe doing a beliefs inventory, being able to internally Google. Yeah. And I will give some prompts for that just to give some structure to it in a minute. But, you know, I think what you just said is very important as far as what can I control and well, okay, I can control my breath. If I can't control the weather, I can't control blah, blah, blah. I can't, you know, can I control my internal systems? Okay, that's a great place to start changing your breath. It changes your mind. It changes your nervous system. But what if you can't control your breath? That's anxiety. That's a panic attack. So when you feel betrayed or out of control by your internal, your, your sense of self, then it's crippling. And so culturally, we're seeing more and more and more and more and more anxiety. And, and I think as people come to get treated for anxiety and find awareness and find, you know, it's like these this is the anxiety is the problem. There's a solution. I hope the solution can be of mindfulness and awareness can be done skillfully. And, you know, there's a lot of apps out there that are very helpful for people, but we can't bot mindfulness, you know, it's got to be personal and and skillful and heart-based. Right. But to your point, you know, there are, so just to mention a few, I know that Chopra Institute has an app and there's Headspace. Do you want to mention a few others? Well, Chopra actually just bought this app. I think it was the Chopra Center that just bought this app that Brown had been working on for such a long time. And there's, I mean, there's just, there's, there's major benefits to it, but there's also challenges. So I, of course, I, yeah. I don't have a, yeah, I don't have a, you don't have a favorite or a, no, I def, I don't use, I don't use or know enough about any of them. I'd rather people, I, I only know what my clients have told me about. I don't recommend them necessarily to people. If mm-hmm. I, if they really are scrambling for something, I'll say, I know there's a lot of apps out there. Try Headspace or something timer, Insight Timer. I think Insight Timer, I've heard good things about that, but I haven't experienced any of them personally. I think it's a great crutch to have at first, but a lot of times it's hard to get off the crutches, you know? Yeah. Well, and therein is, you know, I guess my next question, which is when it comes to mindfulness for those of our listeners that might not have a practice, where would you suggest they begin? Um, listening to yourself, um, listening, noticing your breath, noticing what your body does, uh, this disconnect, this Cartesian, um, I think therefore I am instead of that, it's, I feel therefore I am. Mm. So notice uh, every day, this is my, my series of questions. How do I feel? Wait for the answer to that to float up. What do I need based on how I feel? Wait for that. And then what am I going to do about it? How can I take action? So how do you feel? What do you need? How can you, what can you do about that? How can you get the need met? What, what physical steps do you need to take? Often we stop at step two, Mm. we realize, but then we don't actually follow through on getting the need met. And and that can be something like setting yourself up for success, like meal planning, you know, like these seemingly simple, idle things that are like so valuable because, oh, if I actually have enough nourishment, then I'm going to have more access to my cognitive compassion and empathy and, you know, so on and so forth. But for anybody, no matter where you are in your, your practice or your adventure of mindfulness and learning to know about yourself is to watch yourself, to listen, to feel like what's going on? Why am I holding my breath right now? I'm clenching my jaw right now. I'm squeezing my shoulders and to, um, to re release it because that the more, just the tiniest bit you, anyone could understand about the nervous system and the, you know, the, the fast nervous system versus the slower version of the nervous system. 
the fast part of the nervous system is just constantly working and listening and reacting, 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 where the the slower part of the nervous system, the prefrontal cortex is like, oh, wait, let's think and feel about that for a moment and then make a decision that often gets cut off by the fast responders, the first responders in the brain. So if you can start to see those and slow down, even just notice like, wow, I'm clenching my jaw. Why? What's going on? Where am I? What am I expecting? What am I, you know, what, where am I walking into? Where am I driving? Why is it every time I drive down this street, I feel this way? Just start to pay attention, start to listen yeah. and ask, have, have a conversation. And, and what's, what I just love is that those moments when you're in that state of tension is the, are those are the moments where you've forgotten. And I think I've said this before on this podcast with you, but um, last time we, we talked, but to me, the definition of yoga is, is remembering. So I love that you were talking about that. It's remembering our wholeness. It's remembering it's the sigh of release and relief when, when we feel seen, when we feel heard, when our needs are met, not necessarily externally, but internally. But yeah. if you can't start internally, start externally, start watching and looking and where are the places where you feel safe and stable or where are the places you feel triggered or not or, or safe or stable or angry. You know, what makes you forget is just as important as knowing what makes you remember. I love that. I love that. Recently, I did a program actually called PQ, which is Shirzad, and I'm going to butcher his last name, so I won't even say it. But it's positive intelligence. And it's this exactly what you were pointing to. But it's this idea of that any negative thought that we're having is like the voice that that internal voice of, you know, in coaching language, what we call the saboteur. That in some way, shape, or form, that that's that monkey mind doing its thing, kind of that negative narrative. That, yeah, it's the oldest part of the nervous system. Yeah, that often trying and, to protect us. And you know, I the goal of the program is to notice immediately, kind of what you're feeling, and just like you said, in terms of those questions, kind of doing that internal inventory, but then disrupting it. And and that yeah. comes in the form of actually physically, what he tells you to do is to disrupt it by first, just rubbing your finger and your thumb together, you know, enough so you mm-hmm. can actually feel the ridges. Right. And like you said, that's a crutch. And that's a mindfulness. Absolutely. Yes, it's it's cognitive behavioral therapy dialect. Absolutely. Right. But just such a simple way, right, to disrupt that. And And we dismiss these simple things, but yet they absolutely but we have to be able to slow down and do them because these as you're basically you're talking about ants, not the little creatures that that roam around, but ANTS automatic negative thoughts, they'll kick in so quickly, so quick. And so we need to have a practiced response. And that's why when we go and do the physical practice of yoga, we are practicing just like Ralph Macchio and he's painting, right? We're practicing what we're going to need off the mat. As you are on the mat, you are in the world. So it, it makes this microcosm for you to be able to, okay, I'm under stress right now because I'm in chair pose and I hate it. I don't want to be, and there's no chair in sight. Why do they call it chair pose? Blah, blah, blah. Right. That is an opportunity for you to like feel the ridges of your fingers and your your index finger and thumb, or to summon your breath, or to soften your jaw, soften your shoulders. So in those moments where in like you're kicking your nervous system into distress, but then it's it, you're bringing it back, so you're really able to to regulate the nervous system, and you're that's what you're learning in the practice of yoga. In the practice, and that these 
you know, that this practice doesn't need to, again, look a certain way. Yoga is an excellent way. The way that I was describing is it is another way there's many ways to kind of begin the practice and there's ways that you're already doing it Mm -hmm. so what are your self-soothing regulation tactics now like are you like kids suck their thumb they bite their nail they like what is it that you're already doing that is a self-regulating behavior is it a healthy one Right. (laughs) Right. We have a lot of unhealthy ones. Well, it's been Um, so cool because again, like uh, just yesterday is a prime example. Of course, I've noticed in, in my practice how much less I tend to suffer because the cumulative impact of the practice for me has been noticing that I can actually mm. accomplish and do tasks that before I would have dread, but it's, it's like I'm noticing you know, and if you're, of course, for somebody like yourself, Coral, you're probably like, duh, but no, you know, no. okay. <laughs> no, I, it's like the, the carpenter's house has fallen down sort of thing. Okay. Like, okay. Always, always trying to, because yesterday to and well, it, it goes back to like chop wood, carry water, right? It's this, oh, now I understand, right? There's, there's no suffering in this task because I'm here right now mm-hmm. in this breath, in this moment. And there's something so liberating about that, that just I noticed yesterday practicing continuously that, you know, just noticing, first noticing my body and then bringing myself back to the breath, bringing myself back to touching my fingers in that way and then disrupting that and just continually yesterday to the point where I almost have Mm. like a blister on my thumb. But Mm. it's been so wonderful to actually get the cumulative impact was that I had a full day yesterday where at the end of the day, I have a practice where I, you know, silently practice gratitude as my prayer at night, you know, and and Mm. some of the things that I'm grateful Mm. for. And last night, it was just this deep appreciation for all of these simple tasks that I did all day, but that I stayed with myself, that I stayed with my breath. I was going to say breast. I stayed with my breasts. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that I was fully present, you know, and and that I, there wasn't a whole lot of suffering yesterday. And I am somebody. I'll raise my hand and say I'm usually acutely aware of my own suffering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I just found that to be a revelation. So yes, it is. And you know, when we are whatever our awareness is pinned to in yoga, we call it a drishti or a focus, not just your external gaze, what you're looking at, but what you're focusing on internally is it's what you're going to see. Yeah, it's what you're going to see. And it's what you're going to feel. So even just acknowledging, I mean, that sounds like a beautiful day. Acknowledging for the for the version of yourself or the other, you know, uh, all the rest of us that aren't in that day, which you may not be every day, right? That it's still it's possible and just start where you are with just simply being aware like all right, I'm going to release my jaw. I'm going to bring my tongue to the tip of my mouth. I'm going to take a deep breath and a loud exhale. You know, like not just dismissing these very simple practices because they're very profound. And the gratitude practice, just having passed the Thanksgiving, strangest Thanksgiving of all time. Of all time. (laughs) But I mean, I could talk a lot about that too. But anyway, the benefits of it, flipping the script, right? This is cognitive behavioral stuff or just mindfulness really cbt is is yoga psychology in so many ways but anyway the the gratitudes right working on on what we're thankful for and 
sometimes it's like, oh, the same old thing. I'm grateful for this. I'm grateful for that. And it kind of loses its steam. And so, or it becomes a platitude, something that's said so often that it loses its, its potency. So for me, I said, okay, let's flip this and say, what am I taking for granted? Yeah. And when I looked at it from that angle, it just filled the page. Wow. And the things that I take for granted are the things I'm the most grateful for. And you know, that's nothing new, but it's it's a different prompt, I think, around instead of Thanksgiving going around the table, say, What are you grateful for? What do you take for granted? Wow. You know what I mean? Like yes. that's gonna actually give a whole lot of texture. And the answers are the same, honestly. The answers are the same. Oh my god, I just, I just, I just got the chills. Yeah. Over the weekend I do this hiking thing and and with intention and, you know, integration activities. And one of the question at the end was, you know, what are you taking for granted? And then after it was, what are you grateful for? And they did the same thing. I have a friend who does your hiking and she loves it, Aww. loves it, loves it. So, awesome. well, we've and, been having such a good time. Good. Well, and I, as usual, such a, such a rich conversation. I can't, I can't thank you enough, Coral. It's been so, so oh, amazing. I do have yeah. to say, sorry, I know you're no, no, go ahead. generous and kind. Let me dodge that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to say, I wanted to give people some uh, a prompt because I know we're wrapping up. Yeah, but I yeah. want to give them prompts for you know, doing a, an inventory, a, a core beliefs inventory. Here's some categories for core beliefs if, if, so that you don't have to start from, from nowhere. Although I do think it is great for you to kind of start to wonder, like, what are my core beliefs? We mentioned trust. We mentioned truth. We mentioned justice. So here's a, a, a list, core beliefs that you can you can start to focus on how you how you feel regarding these beliefs worth your sense of worth okay your sense of competence your sense of belonging sense of lovability your sense of security trust and self-reliance you can ask yourself that question how do i feel around the statement i am worthy i am safe i am confident i am competent rather i am powerful i am loved right i am secure yeah. And then some of them like autonomy, like, uh, um, I believe the world is a fair place. I do. You, what, what do you believe? Do Instead of saying I am worthy, just say, I believe I am worthy. Answer that question. Mm-hmm. I believe people are good. I, I believe I belong. I believe the world is fair and reasonable. You know, so asking yourself these questions and then also maybe doing a, an inventory that you find online can be helpful because you know, they kind of shape the questions, not as directly to get you to honest, uh, to get you to a, a, an honest answer. And what if we come across an answer that we don't necessarily like? Well, it, I mean, that's such good information, because we, you know, our beliefs, we can be darkened by by our beliefs. And so if we come across something that we feel darkness around, then fantastic, it's, you know, light, shine light on it and, right. and sit with it and be grateful for that. Yes. Yeah, so there, yeah, right. there I, it is, right? This, it's, it makes sense. It's like, no wonder why I have a problem with X, Y, or Z or this, No wonder or like, I don't feel safe, right? If, if I don't exactly. trust that the world is a good place, why would it's I feel an safe? To a question. Right. Yeah. Okay. So any answer is a great answer or any question is a great question. Right. I love it. (laughs) Okay. Well, this has been amazing as usual. Any, any final, anything that you want to say? And, and I just want to say for my listeners, you know, I get to do this over zoom and we decided to turn our cameras off today because all everybody at home is of course on zoom. And I wanted to make sure we have a clear connection, but you have Ganesh uh, as your screensaver. And I just wanted to get curious about Ganesh. Oh, well, Ganesh is, he's probably the most identifiable of the Hindu pantheon. Um, 
my son knows most of them, but you know, Ganesh is his favorite because he's just so obvious and he looks so jovial and happy. So he's this elephant headed, big belly guy that has like a handful of candies in one hand. And he's known in Hindu mythology for being the aspect of ourself, not an external, actual fundamentalist perspective, dualistic God, but a projection. Uh, all of the gods are are sort of like in, in mythology, we need to be able to connect and see ourselves in all of the different characters, not just the one we want to be most like, because um, that's what they are, is they're all manifestations of our persona and the different aspects of being. So what Ganesh represents, the aspect of our being that he represents is our fierceness and our courage and our ability to remove obstacles. Someone may say, I'm going to you know, summon Ganesh to remove this obstacle that's in front of me. And it's, you're not pulling an external source in, you're just sort of by confirmation bias, right? You're, you're pumping yourself up. You're pumping your own tires and like, yes, I can do this. I got what it takes, no matter what the outcome is, I can handle it. So that's the Ganesh energy or power. But it's also said that Ganesh puts the obstacles there for us. He gives us the lessons that we need to learn. Ah, So so Ganesh is like the grit, no grit, no pearl, no mud, no lotus. Yeah, exactly. I love that. All right. Well, that's a perfect, that's a perfect ending note, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It sure is. Thank you, Monica. Thanks for having me on again. This was fun. Thank you. And to our listeners, for sure, we'll make sure to put all of these resources in the show notes and more to be revealed. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit us at jointherevelation.com and be sure to download our free gift, subscribe to our mailing list, or leave us a review on iTunes. We thank you for your generous listening. And as always more to be revealed.